Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 318 and part one of the Pete's Percussion Podcast PASIC 2022 preview. That is a lot of peas, and thanks for being here. Because it's PASIC week. We made it. I'm really excited to share these interviews with you. I did two full weeks of nonstop interviews to get ready for these episodes, and I have a lot of great folks who joined the podcast to talk about their presentations and themselves. Once PASIC concludes, I'll then be sharing the full episodes and my full conversations with these guests at that time. So stay tuned for that. I also want to note before I start that there are a lot of folks who've been on the show that I unfortunately did not have time to get to talk to for this preview show because they are all also presenting at PASIC this year. So here's a probably not complete list of folks presenting at PASIC 2022 that have been guests on the show in the past, and I look forward to hearing from them soon. Chelsea Levine, Damon Grant, Abby Fisher, Matthew Lau, Heartland Marimba folks, Hannah Weaver, Marco Sharippa, and Matthew Coley, Jordan Nielsen, Megan Arns, Matthew Jordan, Brad Meyer, Julie Davila, Tony Lyman, Omar Carmenatis, and Brian Zader. And I'm sure that's not the complete list. But otherwise, let's get to the interviews. As in the past, I'll separate them by day. Today's preview will feature folks who are presenting on Thursday of PASIC. And tomorrow's podcast will feature people presenting on Friday. So today we'll be focusing specifically on new music research folks, as well as one other Thursday session. So let's get to it. First up, Rebecca Lloyd-Jones. Rebecca Lloyd-Jones is currently a lecturer and coordinator of percussion at Queensland Conservatorium in Griffith University, which is in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. She'll be performing in the opening Thursday morning 9 a.m. session for new music research in room 120. Here's Rebecca talking about the work she's presenting Unsuk Chin's Allegro Ma Non Tropo. So, Rebecca, tell me what you are playing at PASIC, when you are playing, and any other information there. So I'm playing Unsuk Chin's Allegro Ma Non Tropo, and I am first up. I am 9 a.m. Thursday morning. <laughs> that's the prime, that's the best spot. <laughs> Get it over with. <laughs> I d- yeah, I don't know if it's the best or, or the worst or the in between, but um, you know, a little early for for such robust new music, but also um, really really exciting. So I'm I'm really excited to to go back to PASIC. I've been two times before, 2009, 2015, playing with um, a group a group from Australia that I usually play in with my um, previous mentor Vanessa Tomlinson, and so we we would you know premiering some Australian music in the past. But when I went in the past, you know, I was young. <laughs> when I say young, I mean like, you know, just starting in that undergraduate journey, especially coming from Australia. I remember going to PASIC and just being like, whoa, what is this world that I have never seen and experienced? And so now as the years go on and I'm <laughs> feeling a little less green, 
um, so to say. Um, I really sort of enjoy the basic experience a lot more because you can sort of get more out of the um, performances that you're watching um, and the people that you're meeting, you know, rubbing shoulders with some really amazing people in, in our field and also just uh, shamelessly, I'm going to say it, just to buy stuff. <laughs> well, that's a real, I mean, it's one of those things I think, those of us who who go who are in the states don't understand the challenges of getting instruments to other any other literally any other country <laughs> yeah especially during covid it was really tricky here to get just like sticks or sheet music like anything like that it would take 3 months you know you buy something in the us that arrives at your door at least 2 days later <laughs> right. um but yeah i'm i'm playing on Chin's work and um i've played this piece um a couple of times before I prepared it during my doctoral studies at UC San Diego and it's a really really beautiful and unique piece it's around the 1994 to 1998 period and when she wrote this piece it actually was first written as a piece of music concrete it wasn't a percussion solo in the beginning um, and she used all these sort of found objects and then developed it with with the percussionist to become the solo that you hear now there's a lot of layers that I think every individual can create from what you see in this piece. You could see it and think, oh, this is a piece of performance art or performance theatre. It's very easy to go down that route. But for me, that's not really where my heart lies in it. It's really about the sound and sort of the worlds and the layers of sound that you can sort of peel back as you get to know the piece. And the other thing I love about it is that it still has this music concrete feel with the four-channel um you know, backing, you know, electronics that come with it and and your and your sounds being amplified. So it becomes this other kind of ecosystem that's really, really fascinating. I, and I'm glad you sent me the clip and I got to watch it uh, earlier today. Um, yeah. I'll be playing it. And I will admit that that when it started, like I had a kind of a, a previous mindset about, okay, this is what it's going to be. And then it starts to transition because, you know, you, you have the... Um, you know, the theatrical thing that, that really gets it going. And mm. then there's the, and then it's, you can, and then you have the amplification sound kind of, kind of building. And then it kind of becomes, you know, a, I would, I don't want to say standard, but it becomes very much like a, like a, a pretty contemporary multi-percussion solo for, for a good bit of it. So it, it seems to go section by section in that way. You know, I, I don't do a lot of performance theater like that. That wouldn't be in, in that genre per se, like specifically that genre. That's not, um, necessarily my aesthetic and I remember when I was preparing this piece feeling very comfortable at the, the the back of the setup you know with the six gongs and the drums and all these little weird uh you know not weird but you know peculiar objects that I have to drop that that felt very sort of normal um but the thing that was really tricky for me to develop was these moments of long silence or sort of non-playing I guess you could say um and then also that that opening with this humongous box that I have that actually is filled with 100 or so pieces of paper <laughs> that I have to somehow get out and I remember working with my uh, teacher Steve at the time on the piece and I remember saying look I feel really uncomfortable I don't know what I'm doing I feel like I'm out of my body doing this and I remember he said to me if everything that you're doing is centered in the sound you can never go wrong and I remember taking that bit of advice and just being like 
oh yeah, no, this makes sense. <laughs> and so my philosophy on the piece, it really, it might seem in that theatrical way. And there is that performance, um, performative aspect, but but it really is about unlocking um, those sounds. And, you know, Unsuk Chin studied with um, Ligeti and um, she wrote an opera about Alice in Wonderland. And for me, I really see this piece as this box at the beginning being something that we might not know. Here is this 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 world of sound in this box. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to bring it all out. And then once I've brought it all out, I actually take you into this other world, which is the back of the setup with the clocks and the water and the spoons and the sistrum and, um, and to the to the tamtans with the chains. And then when I'm finished showing you this really weird world that I have, I'm going to bring it all back in. I'm just going to close up this box like it never happened. And that's sort of the narrative that I take with the beauty of this piece. Um, and, again, you know, I've seen so many other wonderful performances totally different approach, totally different take on it. So I think that's one of the beauties about, you know, interpreting music. I was curious about how much you know about the title and why the title is is what it is. That I actually do not know. And in the performance, performance notes of the score, it doesn't say. And because I haven't worked with her directly, I actually don't know. But if you do know, that would be wonderful. No, I don't. <laughs> I that's why only, I asked. <laughs> I can only imagine that um, and having, you know, knowing her other work and, and preparing some of her other works and, and just being kind of a, a fangirl in a way. <laughs> I think it could be a way of destabilising what we think of as classical music. I'm not saying that that is what what her intention is in that place, but um, there's something very much about this solo which is classical in the sense of Western art music of structure and this is the form and this is a piece and this is a classical piece that I'm going to give to you. But it's ripping that apart at the same time. And so I I, I think my take on that title is is that kind of way it's destabilizing of 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 those things. I, mean, I would I would definitely get that sense of like said mm. from the video you sent. I'm curious, is the score written out in such a way that if one were to, you know, look at it kind of linearly, like if they're reading kind of a, a more like typical 19th century score or something like that, would it, does it read like in terms of timing, like a piece that's written at that tempo, or is that just, uh, does it feel like that's oh, a term that she's just like. The tempo actually does not fluctuate rapidly throughout the piece. Okay. Um, and it is fully notated. There's everything about this piece is fully notated. There's nothing, there's no ambiguity. There's no improvisation. There's nothing. Everything is completely strict. And it's played with a click. You know, I have a click going the whole time to stay in time with the track because these things um, mold together. But, yeah, the tempo as such actually does not fluctuate. It actually stays relatively close even though it changes meter you know, a couple of times throughout. What does it take for you to to perform this not in your country? <laughs> like in terms of the gear. <laughs> well, you know, when I started, when I decided I wanted to play this piece in one of my, in my doctoral recitals, I just spent a lot of time buying really silly things. <laughs> and that was like <laughs> one of the first steps of, okay, that clock doesn't tick loud enough. You know, you can't get a, a clock these days that isn't just sort of an automatic hand, which you know, is really a first world problem. But I, I had to just really 
buy a lot of different clocks and find a lot of different clocks to get them to tick. Um, to play this, you know, I played this at UC San Diego. So to play this there, I was in extreme luxury, I have to say. You know, I have I had a whole big studio room and I had my gongs mounted and all the drums I wanted and all of the obscure things that I had just continued to purchase over a couple months period. Um, and a box, I made a really big box and I, <laughs> so I invested a lot in the sounds that I had. They weren't just, um, you know, a second thought to the, you know, to the book that I, that I just do once and then throw, you know, to, to the glasses that I smash, you know, everything was very specific and, and absolutely deliberate. Um, like in the in the video that I that I sent you. Um, so to play it just took a lot of a lot of time. It didn't sit straight away. You know, uh, the things that I have to do on the tam tam are very, um, you know, uh, quote, traditional in the sense, you know, I'm playing these gongs, I'm doing all of this to then move around to sort of learn how to deal with space and time with, with objects. Um, it took me a lot of effort to make that to happen. And then the next thing when I moved into the theatre to be able to do this this performance is that I, I had to really work on the levels. So I had to have someone that I trusted to help me with the electronics. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily at UC San Diego, there's, you know, no shortage of amazing people to help you with, <laughs> with things like this. So I had this beautiful black box theatre and I had all the chance to balance the four channel track going surround in the space to the microphones to my sounds and and then I was lucky enough to have you know amazing lighting there's lighting cues written in into the score so it's a whole production this piece which <laughs> um <laughs> I haven't actually played it in Australia I would I really need to do that that's that that will be a next year goal perhaps um so I was, you know, I was really in luxury in, you know, a lizard in the sun in um, at UC San Diego. But at PASIC, it's not quite the same <laughs> as much as I love PASIC. You know, a 9 a.m. slot uh, with a really short sound check is not <laughs> not as easy. But, you know, a lot of the same instruments that I've kept, you know, I've kept these. I'll be taking them, taking them with me. Do you know how much time, I'm curious, how much time you do get? Because because you're first, I would assume that you actually, uh, you actually have more time than a lot of people get to do stuff. I yeah, I believe I requested a time where I did have more time for tech ah. because <laughs> I don't think you could get this ready in 15 minutes. You know, the setup is kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. Um so um I'll be able to have my things there the night before, but there's no sound until literally just before the concert. So that's you know, I guess that's um you know, I've thought about it, oh maybe I should do a different piece and maybe make it easier for everyone. <laughs> including myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's something about this piece that also needs to be heard. And there's something also about um, modifying pieces for performance spaces and performances as need be. I don't think that that's a bad thing. One of the reasons I would love to keep performing this piece is that I think it's really fantastic and it doesn't get played enough. Obviously, because it has a lot of logistical challenges. <laughs> but I, I really love to advocate for the composers that I um that I dedicate my time to. It was the comfort level, like you had stated earlier, was that the thing that you had to really break out of? Or was that, I mean, I would assume that if you're studying with Steve Schick, you're probably, there's probably a lot of comfort levels being broken because he's, because of how, you know, of his own style of playing. <laughs> I would assume that that's just, you like, you know, going in like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do some stuff. You know, like. <laughs> well, you know, I think Steve is such a fantastic individual, you know, just that goes without saying, but he's also a really amazing mentor. Um, 
And one of the things that I love about Steve in the like five year relationship I've had with him now is that he knows when to push and he knows when to leave you. And he he really does care when he's giving you his time for a performance. And it goes without being said that he does expect a very high standard and he upholds a very high standard. And I think him just upholding a very high standard makes you always want to be better. You know, he he's he never says like be better or anything. That's not what that that's not his vibe, but just simply, you know, his presence it makes you strive to to be the best and to ha- to leave no stone unturned you know every single part of the piece is important and every single action that you do is is absolutely vital and so I've really taken that ethos from from him um and I think I've learned that you know some certain pieces take different preparation styles certain pieces um sit easier sit quicker different things and with this piece some things sat really easy and then some things just didn't some things I kind of had to memorize to do also, Eun Suk Shin uses um, five tuplets a lot, which is kind of an obscure thing to, to say, but sometimes five tuplets can be very confusing when you're playing them in a lot of different ways. And so that took a while to sit, <laughs> which is a very specific but obscure comment. So I think my approach is just giving myself enough time. You know, I, I had like a three or four month period in for my initial performance to, to prepare this and playing for people, playing for people a lot was, is something that I find helps me. And I kind of, I see that, I understand that it's kind of, I think of it as, um, and maybe he's brought things up like this, where like an actor, if they're doing comedy, they have to, they have to treat everything very seriously for it to work. Cause if they think mm-hmm. it's a joke, then it's, it's not going to come across. So it's similar to like, even if I'm doing something that seems a little bit odd or silly, like if I take it very seriously and and I'm really there, then the people that are watching are going to be there with me because I'm doing that. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're taking them with you. And, you know, you might seem relaxed or you might seem, you know, perplexed in a moment of the piece. That's maybe that's the intention. But but every single part of the piece is absolutely based in care. It's absolutely every single thing matters. And, I, you know, I try to say that to my students. You know, you can tell when you're teaching a student and they might throw a couple of phrases away, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, well, I can tell, you know. And I always I always want to be as transparent as a performer as possible. Like, in the end, I'm trying to communicate and I'm trying to give an experience and I'm trying to make someone feel something. And I really care about this, so I want you to care about it for that 15 minutes that I'm going to have your attention. And I appreciate the... Um, the role of the listener, you know, when I'm a listener, I'm going to give my all to the person in front of me, regardless of what they're doing, whether it's a marimba solo or a multi or a nothing, you know, whatever, like I, I, I'm going to be there and I would expect that too. And I'm going to give all of that. And um, so I think that's one of the things I, I've also learned at UC San Diego is just to, to really care and, and put your best, you know, intention forward. Music is really wonderful and I think that there's so many layers to it. And so I'm glad that I, I'm really grateful to Abby and Jen and Eric for, for giving me the opportunity to to be able to present at this new music research day. I think that the memories that you take from PASIC, they really can inform a lot of your teaching or a lot of your performance times and they really influence students. You know, I remember going as a student seeing people and I think uh, percussion groups in Cincinnati, one of my first years, and they played drama 
you, you, uh, and I was like, wow, I don't know what this piece is. And then, you know, maybe three or four years down the track, I had to play the piece. I was like, oh, wow, I saw them do that. <laughs> you know, so there can be these really light bulb moments that happen. And so I hope that the the chin is, is, is one of those for also um, encouraging people to take a chance on pieces. You know, this, this piece isn't necessarily um, straightforward to make happen, but um, it's worth the risk. It's worth the time and you learn about yourself as a performer as well. Next up is Adam Groh. Adam is currently the Director of Percussion Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina. He'll be leading a performance from his percussion ensemble of Inti Figus Vizueta's Open Space, taking place during the Thursday morning, 11 a.m., new music research session in room 120. Here's Adam talking about that work and his group's performance. Adam, tell me what you will be presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting. My students here in the Western Carolina University Percussion Ensemble are performing uh, a work by uh, Inti Figus Vizueta, um, and she's a composer um, based out of New York. And so we're doing a piece on Focus Day at the 11 o'clock concert on Thursday. Um, I can't remember the room number, but it's the Focus Day concert room there on the, on the you know, where it always is. And yeah, we're really, we're really excited about this piece. It's, a, it's called Open Space. Uh, we commissioned it from Inti in 2019. Um, and yeah, we've had a lot of fun doing it. And it's been... Um, really exciting for the students. Um, it's very different from what they're used to, uh, though there's no, uh, quote unquote instruments in the piece. Uh, all each person has 20 large sheets of paper, and then you have, uh, five different writing implements. So we use a uh, pencil, a uh, marker, like a Sharpie, and then usually like an even bigger, one of those like real big Sharpies. <laughs> um, and then, and then they have a couple different I don't know the technical term because I'm not a visual artist, but like the charcoal and like the different kind of uh, hardnesses or, or what, what is it? Hold on. I'm looking it up here. Contrast. Inti says two contrasting charcoals. The The table is contact mic'd and they're, they're drawing these shapes and it's kind of about these convergences of, of gesture and sound and, and how that, how that all kind of plays together. You mentioned that the student, this is a very unusual type of work for your students to work on. What are they more used to? I, I think like most, you know, undergraduate students, they're used to um, playing quote unquote instruments, you know, <laughs> with, with mallets and, um, and it's a very, you know, it's very black and white. Like it's, it's very, they're used to the same thing that the most young students are that it's like somebody hands them a piece of music and it looks like most of the other music they've always seen, you know, especially in like an ensemble setting, they may not be given much autonomy um, or freedom. And they may, you know, they're kind of thinking about things in this one very particular way. And so being able to kind of re yeah reimagine um first of all taking all of the sort of technique out of it you know i mean there are there are things we've talked about in terms of gesture and the way that they're drawing um and how that translates both visually and and sonically but but yeah they they just kind of 
have really embraced the the opportunity to try something new and to explore a new perspective and a new means of being creative, which is really cool. Because this piece has been either in process or been worked on for, it sounds like a few years. Does that mean that there's a totally different group of students that are playing it right now? We're on sort of our second go around with the piece. So when we, when we had the piece in 2019, um, we premiered it on a concert and we, um, and we were in, (laughs) that was of course fall of 2019. And we all know what happened in spring of 2020. And our plan was, it was, this piece was one of four pieces that we had commissioned that fall through some funding on, on campus. And so we, we had this plan of like, okay, in the fall, we're going to, we're going to learn the pieces. We're going to perform them, premiere them. And then in the spring, we'll come back and we'll set up some recording sessions and and do that. And of course we all know what happened. And so then we had to walk away from it for a while. And some of the students who played it the first time have graduated. And so I had a group of students, um, last spring who were younger and I thought, Hey, this might be a good fit for focus day. And so I asked the four of them, um, you know, would you all be interested in, in kind of taking this on? And I, uh, there were two, two pieces. We submitted two of the pieces we commissioned in that project, um, for focus day. And I, I asked them, you know, would you, would you want to do this? And I told them, you know, that we, I have no idea if we'll get picked, if we won't get picked, like it can be an extraordinarily competitive process, but if you all want to try it, they looked at the piece and they were like, yeah, we want to give it a shot. And so uh, luckily I I planned that the oldest ones were juniors. So they were coming back this fall. So I gave them first dibs. And so they're, uh, they're able to all come back and do it again. And so now this group worked on it in the spring and they're getting to revisit it now, which I think is, is cool for them to have that perspective. Yeah. What, when you were describing what is part of the piece, it's kind of funny because it. I would imagine this is maybe the easiest traveled piece that you could do. Yeah. About the only tricky thing is like contact mics, you know? So it's like, uh, but other than that, yeah. I mean, we need, we go to like wherever, you know, Walmart and get one of those big rolls of craft paper and then they just cut a whole bunch of sheets and we've got this plastic bag full of writing utensils that kind of, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it can fit inside of somebody's backpack, you know, um, which is cool. Now, within the work itself, is there a lot of, are, are there actually a lot of very specific things that are asked? So basically what Inti says is to, is there are some simple geometric shapes that the students, that the performers draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, if you're drawing a triangle, you follow the same pattern, like, you know, one, two, three, and it's yeah. kind of up to each performer to set their own sort of speed and, um, and kind of, you know, I mean, they could one, two, and then other there, it's a quartet. So there's, uh, the other players may be drawing different shapes. I mean, there's some that's like, you know, kind of a circle that you get this kind of kind of swish sound, sort of like a brush kind of thing, you know, you get square, there's some that's star. So you get these sort of different points and all of those things are kind of overlapping and dovetailing on each other. And what Inti says to do is to draw your shape over and over and over and over until the paper. And it's sort of up to the performer's discretion until the paper either rips where you're drawing or until it becomes so heavily saturated that you're ready to move on to the next, um, to the next sheet. And then basically you pick your paper up, you crumple it and you drop it on the floor and you're on to the next page right there. So the piece it's a little bit flexible on the timeline. I think our version PAS wants us to fit it into 15 minutes. So we have about a 15 minute block 
Um, that is one of the things, you know, the students had to kind of figure out is like, okay, how, how sort of aggressively do I need to draw to be able to get through a piece of paper in however much time and kind of keep us, keep us on the clock. So we are going to use a, um, a timer most likely just so we don't cause any big logistical headaches for the, for the folks at the conference. It is flexible and and they'll switch, you know, they all switch whenever they're done with a page and depending on the shape they're drawing, it might, they might get through that page faster or slower and um, which implement they're using, you know, the markers leave like kind of, if they're a nice fresh marker, they might get a lot of ink. So it really saturates quickly versus the pencil, which, you know, may take a lot more vigorous or lengthy kind of drawing. So are the imp- implements specified? Yeah. So it's, Two contrasting pieces of charcoal, a thick permanent marker, a pencil, and a felt pen. So we have five five implements, um, and they're able to move between them freely. It's there's it's not structured in terms of okay, we're all going to be on the pen. They can they can they're pretty much all switching implements for each page, um, kind of as they as they progress through the piece. What have the students had to figure out in terms of performance etiquette? to make this a worthwhile experience for an audience. It's interesting you had asked about, you know, if we've played it again, I think the first group took the piece seriously. I mean, they they were bought into it. They were interested in it. They thought it was interesting. We played it for a live audience and I don't think the audience knew what to make of it. I think they almost thought that it was a joke and you and you can hear in our live recording there were some spots where you can hear kind of some like murmuring in the background or some like chuckling when they would like crumble the paper and drop it. And we kind of talked about that when we did it with the second group, I said, okay, you know, here, here's what I, here's what our experience was the last time. And here's kind of how the audience responded. And here are some things to think about in terms of kind of some of the themes of, of the piece Inti's work as well, and kind of that perspective and where where this work is coming from, and um, and that it's important that you know it it doesn't become a parody of itself. That it's that it's really you know it's a serious piece of art, you know, that a, a composer and artist created. And even though it might be not traditional, even though it might seem you know whatever to the to the average you know person um you know we need to be completely bought into kind of our mission here as the performers so um we talked about that up front and and the students who are doing it i mean they're all in the the first group as well i mean they're all they're all pros they know you know they're they don't think it's a joke or you know take it lightly so that's that's great and so we've yeah we've talked about you know kind of facial expressions and demeanor and like, you know, simple things. Well, maybe it's not so simple, but you know, when you crumble up the paper, you know, you don't crumble it and chuck it and make it like a joke. You know, you just crumble it, you drop it. It's all, you know, it's very like kind of matter of fact. So, so to speak. On those first performance or performances, did you, was there like a note to the audience or a uh, let me tell you what's going on or something? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I mean, I don't remember if I, I don't remember what, or if I said anything in, in the concert, I think we may have just sprung it on the audience, which, you know, we, I don't, I may have included program notes. I I honestly don't remember. I think if we, if we perform it, you know, if we were performing it again, I would, I would probably do something, whether talking about it more before or after just to kind of put everybody in that, in that headspace. Yeah. The students have done a really nice job with it. Have you had contact with the composer since premiering it 
or uh, in terms of uh, was there feedback? Were there things that that changed this time around? Nothing that really changed this time around. I mean, we definitely, uh, I mean, I'm friends with Inti and, you know, see things on social media and interact like that. I mean, I definitely let her know that that we're doing the piece that, you know, we're going to be playing at the conference and everything. We haven't really talked about any any changes or edits or modifications. I think I shared the video from the first performance uh, way back when, you know, we had sort of like an archival video that wasn't anything we were going to distribute out to the world. I think I shared it as just sort of like, hey, here was a, you know, the concert. Yeah, I think Inti was, you know, positive reaction. And so we're, um, yeah, but nothing has changed in the piece really. And I think kind of the openness of it and and, and all of that, um, you know, wasn't like, oh, I don't really like that harmonic change there. So let me tweak, I'm going to tweak that. Or oh, that's not like, it, it's kind of just an open framework to work in. Yeah. No, uh, no decisions of independent roles versus uh, handmade no. roles. Or... <laughs> no, nothing, nothing like that. Thankfully, <laughs> gotcha. The piece in general is really—it's a lot about ritual, and and Inti talks about that specifically in the program. And I pulled it up just so I made sure I didn't misquote it. But it says that integration of ritual in contemporary music spaces has generally been a colonizing act, and so using this. I think it's an appropriate way to kind of like we were talking about flip some of those traditional expectations of a piece of music, um, you know, kind of on their head. And it's kind of throwing some of those, those rituals and expectations and things out, which is then, you know, I think one of Inti's goals is, you know, then making space for new ideas, new people, you know, and, and leaving that, space in our art form and in and in music in general and so this is kind of uh, an extension of that both in on different levels you know kind of the the idea of of the expectations of what is going to happen in this piece but also I, I talked to the students about you know as they're drawing these shapes these are kind of like these it's like a little mini ritual you know and so and and then we can listen, you know, and kind of think about the, or the different shapes being different perspectives or ideas and hearing how they interact and hearing how they complement each other. Um, and I think it was, it was cool. Cause when we recorded it last spring for our, for our proposal, um, when I, when I sent them like the recording after we had, we had done it one day and a couple of days later, I say, Hey, here's like a first draft. Let me know what you all think. And they were all like, whoa, this, like the sound is so cool. Cause they were getting the contact mics and we have some overhead mics that we were kind of combining and they could really hear like all of this interplay and everything. And they were, they were really excited about it and, and about how the piece was, was coming off. So I think, um, yeah, I think that message is really important and just, you know, creating that, those spaces and that welcoming environment and questioning those things that we just uh, kind of do out of habit because they're just the rituals that are associated and thinking about who might that be keeping out or, um, you know, what kind of barriers are those rituals putting up, which is really important. Next up on the preview, Carly Vigna. Carly is not only a percussion professor, currently teaching at Shenandoah University in Virginia, but she's also a podcaster, as one of the co-hosts for the At Percussion podcast. Carly will be featured twice at PASIC, 
first as part of the Thursday afternoon, 1 p.m. new music research session in room 120, performing Alvin Singleton's Angoru 7, and later on Saturday at 11 a.m. in room 205 for a fundamental session on expressivity and musicality. Here's Carly talking about both of her presentations. So, Carly, tell me what you're presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting it. Yeah, so I'll start with the when. That's easy. It's um, Saturday, which is the 12th at 11 a.m. I'm going to be doing a clinic called Expressivity and Musicality, Moving Beyond the Ink. And um, I had the idea for this class because about a year ago when I had just moved to Shenandoah and I was having like a large group of brand new students, new to me students all at once, I found myself saying a lot of the same things. So I was talking about um, things like, you know, here's how I like to interpret a tenuto, right? We, we want we want it. We want the tenuto to make the the note sound longer, but we can't actually make it longer. So I think of an emphasis, and um, it's not always an emphasis in volume, but an emphasis in weight. And so I was just describing how we use stroke to do these things over and over again, and that hadn't happened to me in my teaching life before because I never had like all new students all at once. Um, and so I thought, like, I better put together a class on how I talk and think about a lot of these musical concepts. Um, and so that's what I did. It's it's based on a class I've done now a couple of times. I did it at University of Delaware last year and then at Indiana University at their summer workshop. Um, and so I'm kind of refining it, tightening it up a little bit and going to be able to do it. It's, it's one of the education committee's fundamental series clinics. Um, and it's going to be mostly aimed, well, it's actually aimed at a pretty wide audience because I, I hope it'll be helpful for educators of all levels, percussionists and non-percussionists for any of those poor non-percussionist souls who wander into PASIC. And also helpful for anybody that's going to teach in the future to have this language to talk about these, these more subtle um, musical concepts. Um, and then also, you know, younger students or less experienced students or just people that kind of want to get out of just playing correct, you know, I'm going to play the right notes at the right time and follow what's on the page. And how do we make it, how do we make it say something and communicate something more? So um, that's Saturday. And I, I actually get to double dip a little bit because I get to play as part of the new music research presents series too. Um, the theme is new futures in percussion and um, including inclusivity. And I, I'm not sure exactly what direction they all went with it, but um, I'm gonna be playing our Guru 7, which is a vibraphone solo by Alvin Singleton on one of those concerts that's Thursday at one o'clock. You're busy, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think you could do two things. And I got the emails back, like when they let everybody know and I wrote back and said like, are you sure? I think there was a mistake. And they're like, well, if you're, if you're only playing one piece on new music research, they'll let you do something else too, so. But got it. I always, uh, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got about applying for PASIC is apply for as many things as you have ideas for, and you don't know which one's going to fit best with all the other things that are going on, or, you know, you don't know, um, you don't know what's going to, what's going to work the best. So I've done that every year that I've applied just as many different things as I have the ideas to do. And sometimes I'm surprised. Did you find out about both of them at the same time? I think so. I think it was the same day. Some of the information comes in at different times, but yeah, I, I think it was the, the same, like same afternoon, something like that. Yeah. 
so you're, you're like, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I think you said this twice or something like that. <laughs> Well, they they put the session in full, and the, I, I guess probably when I got the first one, I don't even remember what was first, but probably I got the first one, opened it, and it was like, oh, cool, like I got this. I guess I didn't get the. I put like I don't know four things in this year. Oh. <laughs> like I guess I didn't get the other things, and then I got the second one, and it was like, oh, okay, well that's cool. But wait, was it a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> Do I get to pick which one I wanted to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. Um, well, tell me about the vibraphone piece then. Well, let's. So, what's the? How well do you know this piece? How long have you been playing it? What's your connection with this work? Yeah, I've been playing it a couple of years. I first did it. Um, can you believe two years ago we were still in the realm of if you're doing a solo recital, it's going to be online. Oh um, yeah, I did. I did a solo recital um, two years ago, and it was online and. Um, it was through, there was a new music concert series at FIU that they were doing all through like, you know, those, those YouTube premieres. Um, and the, the director of the series brought this piece to my attention. I didn't know the composer. The composer's name is Alvin Singleton. I didn't know him or the piece, um, although I've looked at several of those pieces now. Um, he's a what we call a a normal composer, a non-percussionist composer. And so he's written, he's written no offense to percussionist composers because I love, I love percussionist composers pieces, but um, he's written this series of solo instrumental works. Um, they're all called our guru. And so there's our gurus one through eight, three of them are for percussion instruments. Um, I think I'll get this right. Seven is the vibraphone one. Oh, now I can't remember. Six and eight are also percussion. One is snare drum. I think six is marimba and eight is snare drum. Um, solo pieces. And they're they're kind of, our guru means play in a language that's spoken in Ghana. Um, and I don't know, you know, there's a lot of different ways to use the word play in English. I don't know exactly the connotation, if it's a similar word in this, in this language. Um, but I think of it, it's like they they tend to be virtuosic, but also kind of playful, a little bit unexpected. Um, you know, it's they're, they're just fun pieces. And and there's one, let's see, there's one for viola, there's one for flute. I can't remember all the or gurus, but just kind of these interesting little solo pieces in his repertoire. So Alvin Singleton is an African-American composer, um, which is part of how it, it fits into the, the new music research thread of, of um, inclusivity and, and, you know, moving forward to a more diverse community and music world and profession world. Um, and I don't know a whole, whole lot about him. As far as I know, those are the only three pieces that he's written for solo percussion in his career. He's had a, a lengthy career. Um, I have researched him. I don't have it all off, off hand in my mind <laughs> today, but he's where he's been composer in residence with some major symphonies. I want to say Atlanta Symphony, um, and he's been on faculty at, at a handful of schools too. Um, I think artist in residence kind of kind of situations. So it's been fun to play the piece. Um, I've played it a lot in the last couple of years. I find when you find a vibraphone solo that you really like, it's like it's, it's like there it is. There's my vibraphone solo for this yes. <laughs> I've played it around at a lot of places. It's easier to travel with than a five octave marimba, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice piece. Because Singleton is not a 
necessarily a percussion composer or a composer who, who's incorporated percussion necessarily or is it idiomatic for the instrument? Yeah, um, there's a lot of, one of the like characteristics of the piece is a lot of really rapid grace note passages um, and it works, it all lays perfectly well. You know, you, you have to, as you're learning it, take a second and figure out how can I do this um, with four mallets and how does it, how does it work out? Um, it's heavy, it, there's a lot of extended rolls Mm. Um, which is a little tiring, but you know, that's, that's an effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it all, it all lays perfectly well. Um, the snare drum solo is challenging. Um, I recorded this during COVID too. It's challenging because there's a lot of back and forth, like playing on the head and rim shots and rim clicks and, and just to get the precision and, you know, actually get consistent rim shots at the tempo we printed is like pretty challenging, but I mean, it, it works. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Actually, I like his snare drum writing. There's a lot of space in the snare drum writing, um, meaning like open time, which we often don't find, especially in like as drummers, we're like, yeah, I'm gonna play a lot of notes on the snare drum. It's gonna sound cool. Um, and there's you know there's like repeated simple rhythms that is something you don't always see on the snare drum. And then there's also really complicated, technically challenging passages. Um, but I, I liked that it's kind of a fresh take on what, what snare drum can do and can be. I know you're not playing the snare piece for, for PASIC, but when you've done that piece, you said, because there's a lot of space, is there any notation in terms of what you should do in that space? Or is it just, you're just kind of letting the space happen and then you jump back in? Yeah. And his piece there, you, there's not a lot of, um, like musical direction in the piece not in a bad way but you know there's a there's a lot left open to interpretation um in all the pieces i haven't performed the marimba one yet but i've I, i've looked at it um and, and started learning it but there's there's a lot left open to interpretation the snare drum piece if i'm remembering right it's i can't remember the, the metronome marking but it's like steady tempo through the entire thing like there's no i don't think there's any like fermatas or free floating time in that sense but it's like you know a quarter note feels like there's open time and snare drum sometimes yeah. you know or just I, I i guess the rhythmic motif that this used to it's something like duh, no now i'm thinking of nabucco it's not nabucco it's not da, 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 but it's something like kind of relatively simple and sparse you know it's not um heavily ornamented or lots of rolls or really active and kind of repetitive. Um, so it's, it kind of feels like a, a process piece an experiential piece in that way. Yeah. But yeah, nothing theatrical or, you know, <laughs> wave your arm like this after you play the, the right. quarter note. <laughs> well, you know, coming, coming after aphasia, I would imagine that anything that's not that level would almost feel like, ah. <laughs> 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 well, well, doing a piece like aphasia can, um, you know, make you a lot more aware of the way that you move, even when you're doing a normal, normal, regular musical piece, <laughs> like one sure. of the pieces. And, and um, you know, I already mentioned Tenuto and how stroke affects how we feel the length of a note. Like there's so much about how we move that affects how the audience perceives the sound we're creating. Yeah. Well, you know, Relatedly, going back to your um, going back to your clinic, 
you know, when you've, when you did phase, which by the way, aphasia was incredible. I just, did you, oh, your thank performance you. was so good. And I, I'm, a, uh, you know, what, what may have been more impressive, if anything else was you didn't seem phased at all by the fact that it was a packed room. Like <laughs> maybe, maybe you did, but, but like you, it, it, uh, it was like, you were so focused and it was so good. And that room was like totally locked in. Um, <laughs> Well, and thank I, you. Yeah, and I and I just imagined like once that was done, I wonder did you like almost collapse? Like were you like that? Like took up an enormous amount of energy to to keep that all that, day. Well, that was an exhausting day, but actually, the the beautiful thing about aphasia, as far as playing it for that was like a really big crowd. Um, I don't think there was anything programmed at Pasic opposite that concert, so that was like. Right. That's why so many people were there. And actually, I think I think I had to go on stage and start while they were still trying to get people in the door. Yes. Um, the, the good thing about that piece is, you know, you have to like stare straight ahead and fixate on a point and you break character if you look anywhere else. So I actually didn't realize the full impact of like what, and there were lights on me. Like I couldn't really see. Right. Um, and that, you know, right after, like I walk off stage and, Steve Schick was playing right after me. And so, you know, like I said, I was like, I got to hear him perform. I sat down <laughs> with the audience and then I'm looking around and I'm like, whoa, like this is kind of surreal. <laughs> but th thanks for your kind words. That was a, that was, that was fun to perform. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really great. So where I was, where, and where I was taking this is that a p I'm wondering if a piece like aphasia, and I know that your clinic is, is kind of, for all, you know, as you said, it's intended for kind of every age group and every mm -hmm. level, but, you know, what kinds of things playing a piece like, like aphasia and doing that kind of theatrical stuff, how does that, how do you incorporate that into, I guess I would say standard, but in terms of what is more typical performance lit for percussionists? Well, yeah, that's, that's actually, it does tie together because doing theatrical works, I call theatrical works anything that's um, incorporating movement or speech, vocalization, um, any kind of acting or adopting a character, that sort of thing. Um, uh, theatrical works, um, you know, studying and performing them is so much of what helped me kind of unlock a level of expressivity in my normal profession playing, you know, playing an orchestra, playing regular solo repertoire chamber repertoire um and it, it, like that that was just a major turning point from for me i realized like i'm learning so much about how i can use you know my human body in non-musical ways to express what's happening musically and and to enhance what's happening musically um not to say that it's not important what we sound like like the sound production of course is so important but but just the way that we move affects how people perceive the sound and that's one of the reasons um you know the visual element is one of the reasons that live performance is so important and totally irreplaceable by um youtube recitals <laughs> you know just purely audio audio experiences but um, yeah, for me, through my doctorate, I, I imagine we probably talked about it the last time I was on the show years ago, but through my doctorate, I got really masters to, to an extent, really into theatrical repertoire. Um, it was something that was always interesting to me. And, um, I, I realized as I, especially as I got through a couple of pieces, I was like, wow, I'm a different player now than I was 
before doing corporal. I'm a different player now than I was before I did any Stuart Sunder Smith or, or any of those works. Um, helped me feel more comfortable on stage, helped me understand that when I walk on stage, um, I am telling a story and I am a character. I don't have to be like, I don't have to be Carly who just taught four lessons and then had lunch and walked the dog and now I'm on stage. Like that doesn't matter. What matters is now I'm performing, you know, whatever it is, even performing with an orchestra, like I'm the timpanist in a Beethoven symphony right now. And this is my singular focus. Um, not that you can't be yourself on stage, but being able to kind of, regardless of the circumstances, if you're thinking like, I got so many emails to respond to tonight after this concert, or um, I've got like a dissertation I have to read or, you know, whatever thing, like, like you have to leave that aside and be so fully um, physically and mentally and emotionally engaged in the performance that you're doing. And so that was one of the big things that, that I learned. And then, um, you know, all the repertoire is so different. Um, theatrical repertoire. It's like a catch-all term. It's kind of like multi-profession, like multi-profession can mean so many different things and have so many different challenges that, um, you know, you learn different practice strategies for learning the repertoire and you just, you know, you unlock totally different skills. Um, so there's that, but yeah, I guess uh, the, the, the tie-in of, you know, all the work I've done in theatrical percussion to this class, the expressivity, and I'm not really going to be talking about anything theatrical, some stroke because stroke affects the sound and the perception of the sound. Um, but is that, that theatrical percussion helped me learn how to play with a lot more expression and a lot more, you know, a lot more maybe command and, and like and telling a story, feeling like a, like a, a character in a lot of ways than, than I did before. You, you're saying that there's all these, you have these uh, students that are all new to you and you're getting started with them and they're at varying levels. So it's like, obviously that you're stepping into that situation. Was there a point when you were, when you do these lessons and you're saying this thing to every person where, where maybe it was like the fourth time in a row that you had said this one comment and you're like, okay, there's <laughs> something here and I need to like, I need to organize it and present it. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's how it went. And it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, these students don't know anything, you know, they did sure. it. Just people talk about and describe these concepts in different ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was realizing like, I've said this a whole lot, like, like, oh, it struck me like, oh, not everybody teaches how to shape a phrase the way that I do. And, you know, that's good. Cause if everybody did, the world would be really boring. But yeah, it was, it was just that it was explaining, you know, this, many of the same things a lot of the time. Um, and then I started having the thought of like, I should do a class, you know, I, let's do a studio class on this. Um, and then like, I got asked to do some other things. When it, the first time that like I formally put the class together was for the, um, the University of Delaware International, wait, what, not international, University of Delaware Interactive Percussion Seminar. I think that's the right acronym, UDIPS, um, which was super cool. It was a great event um, that Gene Kaczynski and Tim Brosius put together. Last February, last March, February or March, it was in the winter. There was snow. It snowed that weekend. Um, Which you yeah. had to reacclimate yourself to, obviously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other topic. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, this is, I shoveled snow this winter for the first time in uh, almost 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the first time that I kind of formalized it, but it came from just realizing 
oh, here's the normal stuff that I talk about in lessons and mm. not everybody talks about it in this way. And, you know. So when you present, are you going to have uh, various, like you're going to have a set of timpani, a mallet instruments, like, so you, are you going to kind of like go instrument to instrument or are you just kind of general concept apply or something? I don't know. Yeah, um, actually, I, I think for PASIC, it has to be slightly shorter and I cut the timpani part of the, the presentation. We'll keep it a little bit more focused, but yeah, I'll, I'll do several examples on snare drum and some on marimba and vibraphone. Um, and hopefully, I'm still working out precise timing, but I'm planning to do a little triangle too, um, you know, not non-pitched melodic playing. Um, yeah, so like talking about the top, the all the different um, concepts and then applying them in, in repertoire. Is the, is the main kind of idea this should be like, do you get from either when you apply or when you accept, is there a part where they say, okay, this is actually like parameters or here's your audience. Is there anything like beforehand that you knew to, in terms of how you would then organize your own presentation? Honestly, not really. Um, I, I feel that as a percussion community, we could do better probably with guidelines for applying to PASIC. I don't know if anyone listening um, has had this feeling like you're, you're like, I want to apply for PASIC this year. And you go and you look at the categories and then you have an idea and you wonder like, does this fit in this category or this category? I mean, it's like, it's natural for that to happen. I think some have maybe more clear descriptions than others. I kind of had an idea um, when you serve on a committee. Pete, I can't remember. Are you on a PAS committee? Uh, health and wellness. There you go. Um, yeah. When you're on a committee, part of what you do, it, it seems like every committee's job is a little different, but um, at least in the ed committee, part of what you do is like a group of the education committee, or sometimes everybody um, judges all of the basic applications that relate to that area. Um, so before I ever applied, I had the opportunity to you know, score, I don't know, 30 or sometimes yeah. more applications. Um, mm -hmm. And you see some amazing ones and you see some ones that are lacking in one or more areas and you kind of get to see like, oh, so-and-so's was really good. And this one, I think it would be stronger if it had this and this, you know, those those sorts of things. So that, that was really helpful for me. Um, otherwise it can feel like, you know, it, it feels like you're doing a homework assignment but you don't know what you're being graded on and you don't know, you know, you don't know what you have to do to get selected. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what's always, I mean, I've certainly felt that. I wonder if you have felt the way, I mean, I understand kind of like you, you send a bunch of stuff and you're like, maybe something will catch and you know, all that, mm -hmm. those things, but it's always interesting because they don't, they don't give feedback. They don't tell you like, necessarily this is what's missing and i get it because there's a lot and but there are times when you're like it would be nice to know like why i haven't gotten it and and i would i would bet you know like on education side some of it is you're trying to there's like a lot of different elements you're trying to accommodate that maybe if you get three things that are closely related to the same topic well you're not going to do all three because you, you would only be serving one com community is that somewhat right yeah, like you're not going to have, I, I can't remember exactly how many fundamental sessions there are, but say if there's five of them, you're not going to have three on accessories, even if they're all super strong from amazing, you know, players and teachers, like it's just not, it's not going to fit that year. And that's the hard thing is you don't know, 
I mean, it's, it's the same as applying for jobs or auditioning for an orchestra. Like you don't know what the people on the other side of the screen are going to think or what, you know, what their preferences are going to be or yeah. it's just, yeah. Super looking forward to PASIC this year. It's going to be good. Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah. Next up on the podcast, Christopher Thompson. Christopher is a returning guest, having been on the podcast in 2020. He is currently living and working in the Philadelphia area, performing now as Master Christopher, and is a motivational performer, percussionist, lyricist, composer, and entrepreneur. He'll be performing an original work called Fearless, alongside many other great percussionists, as part of the New Music Research Concert at 3 p.m. on Thursday in Room 120. Here's Christopher talking about his PASIC presentation. Chris, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and just excited to be able to be at PASIC this year. I'll be performing on the New Music and Research Presents, uh, which will be on Thursday, November 10th. Um, and it's on the 3 p.m. concert. And what I'll be playing or pretty much performing is one of the pieces uh, that I've written from the Music Desegregation Project called Fearless. Uh, and Fearless, this particular piece, it features five different styles of percussion mixed with rap and hip hop. And so uh, you're going to have Jim, West African djembe, you're going to have um, Afro-Cuban um, uh, congas, you're going to have uh, tabla, uh, North Indian classical tabla, you're going to have uh, drum set. Uh, and then I'll be actually performing some orchestral and concert percussion while rapping, which is going to be uh, quite, quite uh, a blend of some things. And so the piece is written in 5-4. It kind of goes back from 5-4 to 6-4. Uh, I don't know how many times you hear rappers rapping 5-4, but, uh, you know, to have this full composition and, and all these different drummers laying uh, a very kind of blended mixed groove with some unison parts with the rap and hip-hop i'm really excited for what this piece will mean for the percussion community is it your piece or you commissioned it or is like so what's yeah the origin of that so so it is it is my piece uh to go back into the music desegregation project in its entirety um music desegregation is the idea of merging contemporary percussion with jazz uh with classical with and and merging those three things components with rap and hip hop. Uh, all the works that I've been doing within this project are all through composed and they're all composed by myself. Um, and then I'll bring in different performers to, to, to record live music and, and live recordings with video uh, of these compositions. But I'm also writing lyrics uh, and using kind of hip hop elements within these through composed pieces. And so, with me specifically, uh, you know, I write the rhythms of the rap into the score. And so you'll see the lyrics of the rap on top. You'll see the rhythms and everything that that really blend and line up with the rest of the compositions. And so some pieces uh, are more percussion heavy um, and maybe percussion ensemble. Some pieces are more jazz heavy, uh, with, you know, with a small jazz ensemble or a New Orleans style blues with rap and hip hop. Um, I've, I've, I did a arrangement of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto where I had two pianists playing and then merged that with rap and hip hop. And so um, there was a total of nine pieces on this album, just released this album in July. 
Um, and every one of the pieces, again, were through composed and, and really blended and merged these different genres in a way that is it's authentic. I didn't want to just like, you know, do a hip hop style, like do a, a, an arrangement of a hip hop song with classical instruments or do like, you know, a classical piece that's just a hip hop version. Uh, all of these are original. All of these are authentic. It still feels classical, though it still feels like jazz with improvisation or it still feels like rapping hip hop all in one. And so authenticity was a big, big component. And so uh, Fearless, what I'll be doing at PASIC is really just one component uh, of or one piece from the album that was released in July. All right. Is, it, is this just you playing or do you have a group playing with you? Uh, so for this particular piece, I'm going to have four other musicians. Uh, I'll have Julian Allred playing drum set. I'll have Sean, I want to make sure I get his name right, Sean Matavesky playing tabla. Um, I'll have Matt Henry playing the djembe. I'll have um, Adam Riviere playing, um, I'm sorry, Adam Riviere's playing the djembe and Matt Henry's playing kungas uh, while I'm doing the concert percussion and rapping. So it'll be it'll be five percussionists from these different styles and regions uh, all, all jamming together. How have you managed the the microphone, it's like the microphone system, or how how are you um, trying to make sure that that is doesn't get buried? One thing that I've that I use is a Shure uh, wireless headset mic, um, and this Shure wireless headset mic will allow me to to rap. I'll go out into the system uh, while performing and playing, so that gives my my hands some freedom to do some of the things with the percussion things. Uh, and and I'm not the things that I will do will be a little bit more simplified to keep from overbearing and and, and covering up the rap. Uh, so I'll have some uh, castanets and like a tambourine and um, I'll do some snare drum things as well. Uh, but the way it kind of works is that the piece goes back and forth between this five, four groove where everybody's kind of chill under the rap. So, you know, like everything's not covering up the rap. Uh, but then there are these solo moments where each, each uh, musician gets to kind of, showcase their their instrument uh, during the solo moments that are not rapping so that they can kind of branch out, open up a little bit. Had you or have you been able to work with these other percussionists yet? Or is this the first time that this is going to so, be? Yeah. So I, I had different percussionists on the actual album and I've done a live, a live performance with this piece with different percussionists. Uh, but on this particular version of PASIC and finding folks who were going to Indianapolis, uh, I reached out to the world percussion, like the world committee for uh, for PAS and, and some other members and really got to build this Indianapolis crew. So with these particular artists, uh, this will all be the first time I've worked with them uh, on a music desegregation piece. When did the idea first come to you to try this? Mm. Um, so this kind of happened when we all took that break during the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, that was a moment where I really got to sit back and say, you know, what do I what do I really want to do with, uh, you know, with my music and with my gifts and with my career um, and having that time to reflect on it and having that time to 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 try to find what's authentic to myself. Um, you know, for me, I kind of realized, you know, yeah, I was I was at that time, you know, teaching at Hopkins University as a percussionist. Uh, I was uh, as a percussion professor and uh, I was doing jazz vibes, and of course, I was doing our contemporary uh, percussion uh, and marching percussion and drumline, all that good stuff. But I realized that, you know, not one of those things would define me by itself. Um, and I wanted to find a way to merge the different interests and traits that I had 
so that I could have my own authentic space uh, within the music industry and music uh, in general. And so that's kind of where it started, the idea of just writing and blending these, these different genres uh, in a genuine way. When you were writing these works, at what point are you, is the music being written? Are you writing lyrics first? What's the What tends to be mm-hmm. the yeah, so it kind of varies. Uh, when I first started, um, I wrote the music first. I would, you know, I would, I would write all the different aspects, the the full phrasing, uh, and then what I would actually do is write the rhythm of the rap first uh, before actually coming up with any lyrics. And so I kind of, I mean, I really approached it. Rap is nothing but like a snare drum solo with your voice, right? If you really think about it. And so uh, I wrote those lyrics of the of the rap, kind of using a drum pad and using the feel of, for what I wanted to produce. And then I would go back and put the lyrics in and merge the lyrics in. Um, but I've also tried some different approaches. There's some times where I would, you know, write the words first and then kind of arrange some things around the words. There are some times where, um, I maybe would have a very simple harmony, uh, write the rhythm of the rap or write the words and then add everything else in. So I kind of hit it from different angles, but um, usually I try to to either write the rhythm of the rap first or write the rap and then arrange around it. Did it take a while to be comfortable merging the two, the per- the playing percussion with the rap or did that, was that actually not that big of a deal? I still am not comfortable. <laughs> uh, like it's that was probably without a doubt that's one of the hardest things I've probably have practiced before. Like um, you know, I, recently I've been doing these duet videos on TikTok, right? Where I'll take a vibraphone and I'm and I'm playing, you know, like a improvised. It's not even improvised really, but like a jazz solo while rapping. Uh, and you know, as as you know, like if you're playing percussion, whether it's marimba or vibraphone, there's already so many you know layers and different levels of things that you're thinking about at one time. And so to add rap while playing was just another, just another, another, another beast. And a lot of times I try to, you know, like if I'm rapping, I'll try to play the rhythm that I'm rapping and kind of merge those two things together. It's still not easy. It's still not easy. So it takes it takes like just lots of repetition, lots of practice um, to really get comfortable uh, syncopating the voice with what I'm doing with my hands. Well, I'd imagine I guess it depends on performer and, you know, hip hop performer here. But, you know, some people I think are it's I would assume this is like singers where they might follow the same cadence of of rhythm in, in the rap, similar to how a singer might just sing the exact track, you know, Mm -hmm. that would, um, or others would just, they'll, they're going to go with whatever's that feeling right then. And it might mean a shift in meter or of how you've written it out. And so I, I'm curious how you've worked with those elements when you've thought about the performance part versus the recording or written out part. I try to imagine the performance while I'm writing. I haven't got to the place where I'm fully improvising on the instrument while rapping. Uh, I feel like that's like another level of like, you that's know, coming. like level 10 on the video games. So, you know? It's coming next time, next time. There you go. So uh, <laughs> I haven't got to the level of full improvisation on like the mallet instruments while rapping at the same time. Um, but I, I don't want to, I want to make sure it incorporates that feel. Like would it, I want it to feel like I'm improvising and rapping at the same time. And so for me, what I'll do 
um, is that I'll, I'll a lot of times sing what that improvised part will be uh, if I have the idea of the words or vice versa. I'll come, I'll sing what the words would sound like over a particular part uh, so that it still feels like, oh, he's soloing, like, oh, this is this is happening in the moment. Um, so it doesn't feel very um, straight or robotic. That's good. And I have to imagine that that is there's a way that that can be that it can feel robotic if it's just if you're just working out your own comfort level of trying to merge these two things. Oh, yeah, definitely. That aspect of of merging like the rap and the playing in the preparation of it is without a doubt robotic because you just have to, you know, you have to get comfortable with that level of syncopation. But I, I try to get so comfortable that from the perspective of the audience to say, oh, you know, uh, it, it really comes across as very natural. Are there particular hip hop influences in how you put this together? For me, the the hip hop influences will really come from the rhythm of like the rap itself. Uh, and so like, you know, there's a few artists like Toby Nguigwe, uh and, you know, whether you got Kendrick Lamar or even Kanye West, who have very uh, rhythmic cadences in, in the way that they rap, um, they incorporate a lot of rhythms. Uh, you know, and we have to be careful, you know, in today's society sometime or in, in today's time. Right. At this very moment, we get a lot of just triplets in the cadence of rap. Um, that's been something that kind of starts. <laughs> yeah, start, yeah, you know what I'm saying. And so, um, uh, and I would even go back to Juicy J, kind of oh, sure. <laughs> when he first, when he first, uh, you know. But like, that's the thing, um, you know, trying to listen to artists who 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 creatively do different things rhythmically um, definitely gave me some influence on how to approach this. And 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 being a percussionist, like man, like it would be tough for me to only have a very straightforward cadence. I like, you know, being a percussionist gives me the advantage of, man, I can rap in five over this four, four bar. I can rap in three and, you know, in seven and I can incorporate some different functions. So. Yeah. Were you incorporating any of the um, kind of offsetting of, I don't know if it, if it's, if it's, if it's, there's a lot of rhyming at all, but I, I don't know if you were doing some of the offset. Sometimes, sometimes it's like at the, at beat four, or something and then sometimes it's like two to one and a half and, and it's like you know stacked almost you incorporate yeah. in there yeah i mean i definitely jump into that and, and some of that will be in fearless uh there's some different there's a lot of different like rhythmic cadences that'll happen that you know go back and forth in the field of five four where you know sometimes you have three uh you know three over the five four you have four over the five four or you know and so there's going to be a lot of really um you know, those rhythmic nuances happening. Um, and I tried, you know, there's there's five different verses within Fearless where I try to do something quite different each time that may even resemble what you will hear uh, in, in, the, uh, in the piece. And so, for example, there's uh, the, the section that uh, where the Afro-Cuban and the Kungas are playing um, and he kind of leads as I'm rapping, um, that rap mimics the cowbell. Uh, you know, and 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 having that particular rap mimic the cowbell fits that culture and that style. Whereas when I'm rapping with the drum set and he's taking the lead without, you know, without actually soloing, but he's taking the lead, that rap has a little bit more of a uh, funk or so or like rock feel to it that fits that particular style. And so I'm um, trying to get really creative, but yet, you know, 
I guess I don't know. I guess try to ad- adapt the rap based upon what what the music is calling for. Uh, I think makes a big difference. When you were creating all these different sections with these different instruments as lead, did you did that influence the words that you were putting on those specific sections? It could have, but I but for this particular piece, it didn't. Uh, I really wanted this piece to say to speak on this idea of fearless. Um, and, and the idea of, you know, taking a jump, taking a leap, uh, to follow your dreams. You know, uh, I don't know if you, you've ever heard of, you know, or seen on YouTube, like Steve Harvey, when he talks about this idea of jumping, right? Like if you want to reach your dreams, like imagine you're standing like on the edge of a cliff and, you know, a lot of times we, we use media to look at other people soaring in the sky, right? You see them soaring, you see them flying. Um, but you know, we stand on the cliff watching them, you know, watching these these celebrities or big names or our heroes, right? We stand on the cliff watching them soar. Um, but sometimes it takes taking that leap of faith and, and jumping, you know, and, and then your parachute can open so that you can soar with them. But what the, the premise is that if you jump, your parachute might not open right away. You may fall down the cliff. You may, you know, go through some of the bumps and the grind and the, and the hardships of falling down. Uh, but your parachute will definitely open and then you'll get the soar. But the one thing that's very true is if you never jump, then you'll never soar. And so I really wanted the lyrics to kind of motivate and be kind of, you know, inspiring this story of this person standing on the cliff, what they're dealing with, what they're thinking about, what's kind of like calling them back, right? You know, whether it's just, whether it's a normal eight to five or maybe a job that they hate or something that's just like calling them back that's preventing them from jumping and kind of walking through that process until at the very end, it's like, you know what, I got to go for this. I got to take this chance and then, and then jump and, and leap for their dreams. So yeah, that's what the lyrics kind of speak about. The live performance is definitely going to be interesting because uh, just being able to merge all these things with the amplification of all these things. I'm, I'm very curious to see, uh, you know, what, what's, what's going to be possible from, you know, uh, that live feel and having an audience uh, who who can kind of get it, and I and I wonder what people what's going to resonate with each person. You know, maybe they stick to a particular style. You know, maybe they love what the tabla is doing, and they kind of zone in there. Or maybe they're focusing on me with the rap. Or they're you know, like if you're a drum set guy, you might be watching drum set. If you're a djembe guy, you might be watching djembe. Um, but I'm you know to see, I would love to kind of I'm, I'm ready to see what those reactions are from the different members of the percussion community that have these different areas that they can relate to. So. I'm excited. And finally, to complete part one of the PASIC 2022 preview, Cameron Leach. Cameron is a percussionist and educator based in the Columbus, Ohio region, performing as a solo performer, principal percussionist for the Columbus Symphony Orchestra, an adjunct professor at Capital University in Columbus. Cameron will be performing a daytime showcase concert called Evolve, an electroacoustic percussion show, on Thursday at 10 a.m. in room 105. Here's Cameron talking about his upcoming performance. So, Cameron, tell me what you are doing this year, you're presenting at PASIC, and when you are presenting. The, the title of the program that I'm going to be doing, which is a showcase concert, it's technically billed under the electronics and technology category. 
Uh, the title is Evolve, and then kind of a subtitle of an electroacoustic percussion show, so people know what it actually is. Um, it, this was actually a performance that was supposed to be happening last year, um, and, and then I ended up postponing it a year. I'll get into that in just a second. But time and date, it's Thursday morning, 10 a.m., room uh, 105. So I think that's the room by, like, the load-in area, if I remember, the long kind of room. So, you know, uh, this last year it was supposed to be called Elision, which is this big concept I've been working on for years now of commissioning electronic percussion works and uh, basically everything written for fixed media. So there's no live electronics. And I, this year, because of COVID, because of like my, my outlook, my mindset shifting a little bit on things, I feel like I have, I have evolved. I feel like we've all kind of evolved and I decided let's rename this show to be something a little more meaningful. And it's also programmatic in a way. So however much you want to dig into that, but the last E in Evolve is turned around. So it's kind of like a set of repeat signs, um, which has something to do with the show as well. So that's what it's going to be. It's going to run continuous for front to back, no applause breaks. So once it starts, it's eight pieces in a row. Are these works new in the canon, whatever's the canon for electroacoustic stuff? I don't know. But um, what's So what's the range of works that you're playing for this? Yeah, so originally when I when I was thinking about this show last year and and years prior, it was the idea was for it to all be my own stuff, all, my own commissions um, from a lot of different composers. And the concept of Elision at first was that you know the pieces kind of elide, right? You know, the, like there's just this continuous thing. That's what the title came from. I needed a cool word. Originally, I was going to do a piece for every major percussion instrument, and so I consider that to be marimba, vibe, snare drum, drum set multi and theater so kind of like six main areas is what i was thinking and this performance actually has eight pieces because um i've added a few that were not commissioned by me and those are the two pieces on the outsides of the program essentially the repeat signs in the title evolve those are not my own pieces they're both theater pieces and they relate to each other in a way so the letter e they're kind of similar in that way but one of them is like the opposite of the other so there's a lot of like symbolism in my mind that no one's going to actually understand in the show. And that's totally cool. It's just a way for me in my brain to feel like I'm being artistic, <laughs> but yeah, so it's going to open up with a piece called control by Joao Pedro Oliveira. And this is a body percussion piece. It's actually just acting. There's, there's no notes that I play, uh, no notes that I play except for a couple stick clicks. It's going to lead into a drum set and electronics piece, 63 across 81 down by Ansel Neely, which is a super cool piece. Very hip. From there, I got to remember the order. <laughs> Origi- I've got a new Nick Worth piece called Originating Within. I've got a new Sejourné piece that I'm premiering. Some of these pieces have cuts in them because there's just not enough time at PASIC to do this. So I've kind of cross-faded a few things. Uh, Decay Number 2 by Matt Curley. This, uh, you know, the bouncy ball piece. That's going to end the program. Mm. Uh, the theater piece. And then a new piece by Vera Stanievich called Broken Mirrors for Snare and Electronics. And there's there's one more in there. Oh, the first movement of Dave Skidmore's... Um, I leave you the real world for vibes and electronics. So it's, it's a hope. I mean, it's a lot of dense music on this program and I'm hoping it comes off well. And I'm in emergency note learning mode right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like some of these pieces, some of the cuts, if they happen, they might be because I didn't quite get to those parts. (laughs) We'll see. I've been out of the game. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Over how long have you been commissioning this set of works that you're playing? I would say like, I think the the earliest commissions back to 2017. So I think this kind of encompasses 
I would say four years of commissioning from 17 to 21, I would imagine. Um, I haven't done anything too recently. So yeah, four years and I'm ready to put all the electronic stuff to bed. I really am. And I'm hoping this performance and then maybe a tour afterwards to universities and stuff, I can kind of distance myself from it a little bit because there are so many challenges to taking stuff like this on the road. Such as? (laughs) Well, the first one is like having an inconsistent sound tech at every place that you go or no sound tech as part of what i've been doing now it's like i'm making universities pay to have somebody or or presenters i should say not just universities uh because we all know universities probably aren't going to do this uh pay for a sound tech to come with me you know um whoever they have in the hall needs to be there as well they know the board they know the inputs how the and everything but they're going to show my guy when he comes in just like you would for any other touring show um and and my guy's going to run whatever's going on there. But that's been a challenge. And that was really set up to happen right before COVID. Like I had, I had gigs booked, people were agreeing to bring my tech on the road with me. So it felt to me a little more legit, like, oh, I've got a, I've got a crew now, you know, I'm responsible for somebody. And when that all fell away, it's like the the momentum died a little bit. And so I've got to do some gigs to get that street cred again, to say, you got to bring my guy, you know? (laughs) A lot of places you show up and then what they said they have, they don't have electronically. And it can, because it's so dependent on the electronics, it can really affect the quality of the show um, if it's not happening. So on that note, I know I'll speak as someone who doesn't, who's not done much stuff of anything with electronics. Are there ways you can adjust things to, or are you just completely beholden and with it, with some of these electronics that you're, you're kind of screwed that's if it's if it's just not happening. There are some things that I've I've found like over time I've evolved from using no mics because at in the beginning of this like to be honest with you I didn't even know how to operate a microphone or to, like the only thing I knew how to do is plug my interface in with my wireless in-ears and make that all happen and then I ended up in venues that were big enough to where you needed to be mic'd. And so people would come up and be like what do you want? Like what kind of miking do you want? And I'm like I have no idea. Um, and that was like the first red flag for me of, oh, I got to go figure this stuff out. So over time I've become more and more, um, you know, involved in that process and every instrument on stage really needs to be mic'd. Cause for me, I want the electronic sound and my sound to come through the same speakers. I don't want, especially if there's speakers overhead in a big hall and then yeah. I'm just coming from the stage. It sounds so disjunct. It's horrible. Um, and, and even in that situation, I'll have them bring speakers down to the stage and I'll play from lesser speakers and not use the house system because I just want my sound to be directional in that way. Um, you can adjust to some degree, like if at PASIC right now, I'm still waiting on a confirmation from the AV team of how many inputs are going to be in room 105. Cause like I'm asking for 25 inputs, which is a lot for a, a small conference room. I don't know what kind of board they're going to have. So I can probably get my setup down to like. 16 or something you know like overhead coverage on things instead of close miking but at some point the show won't work you know especially like you know the those those conference rooms in PASIC sound like crap and sound isn't going to project from me if i'm not mic'd uh, as compared to the speakers like i just i would actually probably not play my show if there's not enough inputs because it's just not gonna it's not gonna work and we have a one hour sound check to make that happen right well and that if I'm not mistaken, that room is really long, right? Yes. Which is a weird. That's, that's a problem. It's a weird room. <laughs> like, like a, a marimba playing with like Balter Blues at the front of the stage, 
and, and then just like big, like, you know, drum and bass beats coming from the speakers. Like there's no, no shot of that working <laughs> for the people in the back. So I'm, I'm honestly the, the whole, the whole performance in my mind is still a little scary and a little up in the air. Cause like, I just, I just don't know. Tell me your decision about not having applause breaks. Is that, is that something you generally believe in? Is that something because it fits this kind of mood of a concert? What's, how do you see that? Yeah, I, I tend to do this on a lot of these electronic things that I do. Sometimes on a, on a performance, I'll do like one half that has all acoustic music. I've done like a split down the middle and then one half, usually the back half will just run continuously. So the, in the beginning, like you get the applause breaks. Um, I, what I don't do unless I'm, unless I'm botching a piece, I'll never leave the stage. Once I'm out on stage, I'm out on stage and I'm just talking and hanging out with the audience. I don't believe in all this formal recital BS. Like I, I, I can't stand it. Um, but the electronic stuff just generally functions better because if, if in my mind, if it keeps starting and stopping, I'm like, hang on. And then I press my laptop again. And it's like, <laughs> there's this weird, um, logistical nature to it. And I don't want it to feel logistical at all. I just want it to feel good. And and then also at PASIC, like you're going to lose a lot of time with applause breaks. You, you know, you're down to a 50 minute timer. I might be a couple minutes over that. We'll see. And you just kind of live with those things. But, um, that was part of it too. And then the other thing is like, I'm not going to have any programs for the show. I don't want this to be about any, anything, but the music that I play and me playing the music. I don't want people to be scanning my program, trying to think about different things. We don't need that. I just want you to hear the music that I'm playing. Um, so I, I may end up putting it somewhere, like an exact program or something like that. But also the idea of rustling papers in there while I'm trying to play. It's like, no, just pay attention or leave the room. That's kind of how I feel. Have they? I'm curious, did it? Because I wonder if they've been going to – it would make sense if there was like a QR code. Right. That people could just – and that would be just kind of like, all right, it's there. If you want to find out what I play, maybe like an after thing, be like, here's what I did. I don't know. It's, it seems I, I, I do get, if you want to be involved in the experience to just not have as, have as few distractions as possible. And, and I'm not like some musical, uh, what, what's the word like purist or like, I'm not some like performative purist that says right. like, we need to be involved in the entire experience. If it was a show that, had like lighting and um, a lot of stage production stuff. Maybe that's different for me here. Part of it is like the logistics of, of having like programs for people. Um, part of it also right now is things might change in the next three weeks of what I play, you know, because I, I have been just kind of too busy to be practicing this program for months leading up to this. And plus I was a really late addition to this basic I wasn't planning on playing this year. So th yeah. it was a kind of a whole weird thing that happened. So I basically am prepping for like three to four weeks for this. And it's, I'm cutting it really close. So if I have to yank a piece off the program, I don't want it to be affected anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, do, do you mind saying what, what happened? Why you're no. late addition? No, sure. I mean, so last year with all the, it was 2021, I think was the first basic back, right? That would be, yep. Um, yep. So I was going to play, I was going to play then. I believe I was originally slated in 2020 and then I think then they told me like, Hey, push it to next year or something because we're going to go virtual or maybe they didn't go virtual. I can't remember yes. whatever happened. And then last year was approaching and I remember I was super depressed, you know, like everybody was going through it with COVID and I just called Burrett and I said, look, dude, I, I can't play this show. Like I'm not, I'm not there, you know? And he said, that's cool. And 
he yanked me off of it and everything was good. And then this year I didn't apply because I was still, by the time that was happening in January, I was still not well mentally, you know? And so he calls me, I think in May, maybe June and says like, Hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, because I had just come off a recital, um, my first recital in two years, I felt really good about it. And I was like in this positive mindset, but then like, you know, I'm, I'm acting principal in the Columbus symphony right now. And that job is, it's just taken a lot out of me more than I, more than I would have expected. So it was kind of a bad decision. Like I'm not trying to put any bad, uh, bad mojo on my PASIC show, but it was kind of a bad decision for me to say yes at that point, because my life is a little crazy right now. And I'm like, man, I wish I just didn't do it this year, you know? And I, and I felt better about it, but usually I work under these kinds of situations actually the best. So I don't know. So it's like you're, the focus, like you, you're having to extra focus maybe even more than you typically do. Yeah. I do better when there's like an impending deadline. And then when that deadline happens, instead of saying like, here is the amount of work on my plate to achieve that deadline. I say, I should probably add 50% more work in these other things I do in my life. <laughs> but then somehow I get it all done. Yeah. And those are the most productive periods of my life. So yeah, like with the basic thing, I also decided I'm going to do some crazy, uh, you know, I do this whiskey channel. I'm going to, I have this crazy content calendar between now and PASIC. Yeah. And I just went like 300% more on that because I'm like, well, I'm going to be, if I'm working 16 hours a day, let's just squeeze this in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy what we do. Bad move. Yeah. It's wild. When you've been working on uh, all these commissions, are are you, uh, are you emailing the, the composers after a while? Like, uh, why'd you write so many notes? Do, do, do you ever send those back? <laughs> I want to say that to, to Sejourne, man. I, <laughs> I, well, here's the thing. I saw him in Austria, uh, like in May, I, that was my last gig with Orphic percussion, which was this quartet that I was in. And it was a really cool gig out in Austria. And Sejourne was, was doing this thing. Also, it, one of his concertos was being played maybe. And he, he sees me and he's like, Oh, Oh, cause we had never met before. So he, he like recognized me and I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm the guy that commissioned that piece. And he's like, are you going to play it? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to play it at pacing this year. And so, yeah, at this point I want to email him and, and, uh, and ask for some edits, but I'm not going to do that. Although I might have to cut some of the piece. Cause it's, it's like 10 minutes of just, of just notes. And I don't, I mean, I'm at like 54 minutes right now and yeah. I'd rather ask forgiveness than permission. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's one of those things. I'm I'm emergency learning his piece because I haven't. That's one of the only ones on the program I haven't played right uh, just yet. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm like yeah, the ask for forgetting. No, and then you finish and be like, "What do you mean? I went over what?" <laughs> exactly. It's like, wait a second, dude. It's literally on the computer. We can see the timing. <laughs> like if someone walks over, they're going to see the number. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean. Look, I, I, what I'm going to say is like, you can leave during the bouncy ball piece if you really want to. Uh, right. I'm trying not to cut up more than like two or three pieces yeah. and have them be pieces where you're not going to, you're not going to lose the affect of the whole thing. You know, right. um, if I cut the Sejourne, it's a little sad because that's technically the official world premiere, but right. I have to think bigger picture on the basic show and think about the, the show itself and its success as opposed to one piece. Cause I, I can always do like a really killer video for the Sejourne and that would mean a lot more than him knowing that it got premiered at PASIC. Maybe he didn't even see it. Cause I don't know if he's going to be there. Sure. And 
people saying, oh, it was really cool. It's like that's all he gets out of knowing it was at PASIC. I mean, he's got enough accolades in his life at this point. Like, Right. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm excited. And I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of my friends again, which I didn't get to see the last couple of years. So, yeah, yeah. I will, I'll say that 2020 last year was, it was, there was like a couple things. One was that everyone, when I, I had my mask in my hand as I was walking into the, the, um, the convention center the first day. And I was just like, everyone else was wearing masks. And I was like, okay, whew, like, you know, like, all right, I feel better, you know, being here. And then just seeing everybody, after two years was amazing. So I think like, it's going to be another level for you because it's been longer. Yeah. And I, I truthfully like basic to me, I didn't want to go. I mean, I I don't want this to sound any kind of weird way. I I just didn't want to go if I wasn't going to play number one. Mm -hmm. And then number two, I did still consider going. I did. I was like, maybe I should go. But then the experience, I was like, I don't know how it's going to be with people with, with masks. And I know everybody was required to, to wear a mask, which is, which is cool. I just didn't know what the level of like people being like this or like, I just, at that time I was like, you know, I want to go back to PASIC when it's PASIC again for me, you know? Um, Cause everything in that, at that time, it's like, I didn't want to get bummed out if I showed up and people were kind of weird and the hangs afterwards, you know, in the West end or Mm -hmm. the Ram that everybody goes to, it's like, I didn't want it all to be kind of affected. And so I'm I'm happy to come back this year. I'm, I'm more excited about that, I think. And that wraps up part one of our 2022 PASIC preview. Thanks again to Rebecca, Adam, Carly, Christopher, and Cameron for their time. And make sure to check out their presentations and sessions this coming week. You'll be glad you did. And no rave this week. Just go to PASIC. And I'll look forward to seeing you there. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you tomorrow for part two of our basic preview. Until then.